Hello, hello, everybody. My voice is deep right now, but I am here with Kobe Drexler. Hello, Kobe. How are you? I'm doing well. Also working on my radio voice. Yes, yes. The deeper the voice, the more authority you have. <laughs> Welcome back to the Shua and Kobe podcast. In this podcast, we explore deeper conversations that you talk about with your friends at 2 a.m. And we dive deep. <laughs> oh, we, oh, we dive deep. Oh, we dive deep that's, into conversation. Right. Let's go right in. So, Kobe. So, how about the weather? Oh, <laughs> just joking. What, what was that, Shua? I was thinking recently about context and putting things in context. And I think in the context of stress and worry about the small things that are going on in your day-to-day, I always try to put things in context. And that helps me deal with the situation at this moment as if it's not such a big deal in the grand scheme of things. I wanted to hear what your take on that is. So I have a strong memory uh, from, from camp. I was talking to one of my friends who was very upset about something that felt ultimately minor in the scheme of things to me. And I told him, you know, I'll, I'll you know, I won't mention his name, but person X, like, you know, this doesn't really matter. If, if you think of this, like, 50 years from now, is this going to be a big deal? And and he responded in a way that I still remember today, which is, you know, Kobe, this is important now. You know, I care now. And that really stood out to me because on the one hand, in the scheme of our whole lives, the small stresses aren't going to matter. Um, but that doesn't relegate the small stresses to insignificance and there is value in putting things into context, but also not every situation should be judged by the larger context of your whole life. Things that matter right now are important, even if they won't matter to us in 50 years. I think that's a good point. And so you're saying when you build, when you actually think of your life, you are building up moment by moment. So the grand scheme of things is built up by those small things that you do every single day but i think where this does come into relevance is during that exam when you are not present because you're worrying so much about your exam you're worried so much about your project and you want to get an a plus or you get a b and you're just beating yourself up and it's affecting how you react to people it's affecting your relationships and i think at that point it is good to put that in perspective and say, you know what? I did give it my best shot, but it didn't work out. And in the grand scheme of things, that will not affect my life. I'm going to push back on that a little bit. I think when I'm when I'm taking an exam, what I need is not perspective on what this exam will mean in 50 years. What I need is to be really grounded in what I'm doing and really focused on the problem. So I think both sides of the spectrum are are negative uh, in that if I'm worrying about my performance and how I'm going to do, that's going to affect me adversely. And if I'm not worrying because ultimately what is one test in a life, um, then I'm also not going to be focused enough to, to answer the problems and really to dive in. I think that ties into being present. And when you're looking at that exam and 
you're studying incredibly hard for it and you're putting in all your effort and like you said you really need to be focused on solving the problem but there's that overarching stress and worry that is going to be there and i'm not touching on the point of not working hard or not putting everything you have into the exam but building this schema of how important that exam is and it affecting you so much that you're emotionally 100% tied into this exam. And I see that a lot because that's how you're measured. That's the only feedback you're getting here in college. You're getting those grades. You're not getting feedback on your personal performance. You're not getting feedback on your mental health. You're not getting feedback on the relationships you built. And I think those are all part of your report card. But when you allocate too much to that report card, to those grades, it will hurt in those other parts that I think are part of your life. And in the grand scheme of things, those things matter just as much. So what do you think about the whole system of grades as an incentive for learning? I think it's a great incentive, but you do have to put in your own logic and think of yourself as a whole. Because, again, like I said, your relationships, the people you meet, the type of person you are, your mental health, your physical health, all those should be graded personally by you. So grades is just one aspect that's important. And grades are not a direct link to any sort of success or any sort of personal growth. It's just a step. It's an incentive that is built in. But I wish there was more grading systems, especially harsh grading on those other aspects of life. Having those grades helps you really know where you are. At the end of the semester, you know where you are, not just for yourself, but a lot of times relative to other people. You know how much you have a grasp on the material. Some may argue and say it's how well you do in tests. I personally, I have a hard time with time. And even if I know everything so well, I do need a lot of time. And so that affects my grade, but that's part of school. That's the game, that's measuring my knowledge, and that's a different measure of really my thinking process and my brain power. And if I work hard enough, maybe I can get a lot faster. It's just an excuse. So I think the grading system really does work in measuring holistically how much you understand the information and how much you can repeat it and express it on the paper. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder if, if the grading system should be more relative to the individual, sort of measuring progress rather than absolute knowledge. Because um, it seems to me that's, that's more of what learning is. It's, it's not about reaching a certain level of knowledge. It's about that process of moving from not knowing to knowing. Uh, and that happens in stages, right? So the test of learning shouldn't be how much you know, um, but of sort of the um, the derivative of how much you've, you know, been learning. Um, I'm not exactly sure how that would be formulated into a grading system that would be deemed equi equitable by everyone, um, but I, I think it's an idea that should somehow be reflected in, in the system to encourage the progress rather than the absolute level of knowledge. That's interesting. How would you measure that progress of going from not knowing to knowing? How would you measure that derivative? Or can you think of anything that would be able to measure that? Um, yeah, I mean, it is kind of tricky because in a classroom setting with one teacher, 
you can't exactly create customizable courses for each individual. Um, but I think um, often in writing courses, teachers are, are good at this and kind of looking at each student's paper individually and comparing a student's paper to their previous paper and seeing, did they improve the mistakes that they had in the first one? Did they expand upon their ideas in, in a way that um, I didn't see in the last paper? Um, so that's, that's definitely one area that I, I think teachers do a good job of, of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I see that a lot in the more creative w classes that I've been taking in my public speaking class. It's the same thing. I'm measured based on the feedback he gave me from my last speech. And I think that's been incredibly useful for me and I've improved dramatically. But as schooling as a whole, for those generic subjects like math, calculus, is the classroom the best way to do it? Or do you think it's just a system that was built in place and it's so ingrained in culture that we can't let it go? What's the best way to transfer knowledge? Is the classroom setting of a teacher with multiple students for an hour, for a semester, is that time frame? Is this school system, do you think, a good and the best way we have to transfer information and to give education to people or in my opinion which I'll expand on after I hear what you have to say is it just something that was kind of path dependency so these certificates kind of created a system where we're kind of stuck with this old-fashioned type of teaching method especially since a lot of the stuff you can learn on Khan Academy or you can learn online or in one of my classes, actually, he just played a YouTube video for the entire class because <laughs> the YouTube video explains it better than him. So why is there not just like a centralized teaching system going on? I don't know. Why, why do you think that kids don't just stay home and watch Khan Academy instead of going to school? I think it's a discipline thing. I think what really is being taught is teaching kids to sit down and focus, to not fight, to come on time, even though I don't know if I learned that as well. <laughs> but that's really what you're learning, to keep to a schedule, to keep to a routine, and that's really a lot of the value. The problem is, is that a lot of kids can't do that, and I've seen a lot of kids, and then they are... I'm not going to get into the whole argument, but there's a lot of medication dealing with something that I don't think is necessarily wrong. It's just the classroom setting is not the best way for them to learn. I, I agree. There is this inherent limitation to the classroom setting um, in that there are, every, everyone is a slightly different type of learner. And when you put all sorts of different types of learners in one room with one teacher, and one curriculum, it's, it's really hard to specifically focus on what each student needs uh, to best learn the material and certain good teachers can do that and and build environments that allows different students to help each other learn um, but it is it is really tough for sure yeah i think it's almost in, unfathomable to me that there isn't a best teacher in the world teaching everybody you know like I'm what? not saying there should be a one teacher, but there could be a bunch of teachers that are really the best at transferring information. 
Khan Academy is a great example. It works almost everybody that watches it understands it better than what they'll learn it in their classroom. All hail Sal Khan. <laughs> is that the, the takeaway of this podcast? <laughs> I do love Khan. I learned all my economics, all my micro, all my macro directly from Khan Academy. Yeah, I, the one uh, caution I, I have with, with those online resources is I think they cater to a shrinking attention span in a way that, um, you know, reinforces habits of, you know, th I'm trying to get information. And if I don't get it in a solid five minute chunk with clear drawings, then I'm not going to learn it. Um, because really economics is much deeper than what they talk about in a series of, you know, 15 Khan Academy videos. Um, and what we want to learn is not economics per se, like we want to learn economics, but in the process, how to teach ourselves and how to really delve into the, the weeds of the material and not just on the surface, what's been polished and prettied up for a video with drawings. I think we will disagree on that. Okay. I think you can definitely understand the depth of it in a better way in 10 minutes than you can with an hour in, with a bad teacher. And we've all had those bad teachers where you just have no idea what they're saying, but then you read their slides and you're like, oh, now I get it. I, I've had those teachers. I don't know if you have. But I, I want to transition a little bit and talk a little bit about that shrinking attention span. I don't know if there is that actual epidemic going on or not epidemic, but situation happening where people are losing their attention span. I think it's happening in some segments. But as we've touched on before, Game of Thrones is becoming longer. It's a complex series going into deep narratives, and it does require a lot of learning. The books are incredibly popular. Long-form podcasts like this one are becoming incredibly popular. The top podcasts are hour, two-hour long, going into really complex, deep thoughts. I think, and I'm going to throw in Jordan Peterson, who is a Canadian professor, a little bit controversial, but he started this movement of long form conversation and this idea that media is catering to, media is started off as very light, very, I would say like a little stupid, especially if you look at the first television but it's slowly getting a lot more complex and a lot longer. And especially like if you look at Netflix at their new movie where you can interact with it, this is a lot of thinking. Like you need to be somewhat smart to actually go into these things. So maybe that's where the learning can happen because you are learning some complex topics and some hard topics to grasp by consuming this media. So why can't that transfer to the classroom? And I think it's just because a lot of teachers are boring. And when they're boring, you just want the quick information or you're not interested because they're not interested because they're doing research or whatever they're doing. But if you did have the right way of transferring the information, people will be focused for so much longer. Yeah, um, I think you make a lot of great uh, points and you have a lot of great insights into our culture, Shua. Um, <laughs> I, <Thank> think, <laughs> I think um, 
Yeah, one though though most people have slightly different learning styles. I would say that one constant between people is that we learn in a non-passive way, right? If I'm consuming and just taking in a bunch of information, then it'll sit in my brain for a little bit. If I don't use it, then it's it's done. So if I listen to a two-hour-long podcast about, you know, economic theory, and I don't apply it, I just move on to another podcast or go and, like, watch a Netflix interactive movie, it's just going to sit in my brain for a couple hours and then leave. The best way to learn is slightly different for everyone, but I would argue that for all people, in order to really retain what we're taking in, we need to use it, and we need to apply it, and we need to really be active learners, not just consumers, um, but distributors. But what's preventing you from doing that with something online? What's preventing you from taking action with an online course like Coursera? And I'm not saying that you necessarily have to. I think there is some value in being in the classroom, in learning with other people and handing in that work and having that relationship with the teacher. But on a grand scale, it seems like it really can be accessible to everybody. I think a big part of that active learning process and not just passively soaking in information is interacting with people and taking these ideas and really putting them up against other people um, and really honing each other's ideas. And that applies to math and science and writing and English and politics and pretty much anything. So if you're just going to sit in your room and watch Coursera, then you don't really have that opportunity to sharpen your ideas and the higher risk you have for just assimilating whoever's views you listen to on your podcast into your own rather than honing your own perspective in a complex way that is built on multiple perspectives. But are you really taking in multiple perspectives when you're studying in a classroom? Because I, I don't know. I, that's a good point. And I'm trying to think, like, are, are, when I'm sitting in a classroom, am I taking in everybody else's perspective? Is that what's helping me process it and bring out, like, my unique twist or create my own ideas based on the information coming in? Has that been your experience at WashU? I think at Wash U more than anywhere, that's been my experience where I have been able to understand different people's perspectives and learn from my fellow classmates. But I think in other in other places I've been, such as high school, I don't think that was necessarily the case. And especially in places where people are not actively involved or interested in the material and they're just there literally to get the diploma or whatever certificate they're going to get from there that'll help them move on to the next step. Yeah, I mean, it, it is frustrating when you're learning an environment with people who don't want to learn and don't want to be there. Because um, definitely the prerequisite for learning a thing is is wanting to learn a thing. It's very hard to teach someone something they don't want to learn. Um, and I think that is one of the um, beautiful things about college, uh, in, in my experience, is most courses um, beyond the sort of intro level college writing uh, type courses, um, people chose 
and have the flexibility to cater their schedule to their interests. Um, and that's really exciting. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And that's something special about WashU and the American college system. Was okay. it different in Israel? It, yeah, in Israel, they you don't choose your classes. So all your classes are given to you. I had about three classes I could choose, but you do choose your major. So you just, when you walk into college, you choose your major and they just give you a host of classes. And then within like business, I chose business, the third year you can choose whether finance or marketing, which I think is limiting on its own. But I do want to transition. I think we've reached a good point here. I want to go to stress and worry. And we started off with that, but I want to hear a little bit about how you grapple when you are getting stressed, when you feel that your mind is just very stimulated, very worried. And I don't know if this happens to you, but to me it happens all the time where I just can't focus because I'm worried about something. What are some ways that you deal with that or help yourself really just execute and manage that emotion? For me, it, it depends on the source of the stress. So if I'm stressed because I'm overwhelmed, um, for me, what helps is really making a schedule, taking out a piece of paper and literally writing, you know, 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. do this and 11 to 11.30 do this. And then rather than being overwhelmed, I, I can just look at one at a time, this is what I'm doing. And then when I'm doing it, I don't have to worry about all the other stuff because I've already planned and allotted the time for, for this particular thing. Um, so that is one source of stress and, and how I kind of approach that. Other ones are less about being overwhelmed and more about I have this big thing coming up um, and I've done all I can to prepare and I'm just waiting. And that's sort of anxiety filled space of waiting. Um, and in that scenario, I, I usually will go on a walk if um, I need to clear my head, just relax and trust that I did all the work I, I could to prepare and uh, clear my head a little bit. What about you? I like to run. I think running. Okay. I see is... you showing me up. I like to walk. You like to run. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> Listen, walking is, I think, just a different, a different exercise. It's a different beast. And I think you can really, walking is kind of this medi meditative thing to it versus running is an actual exercise. Not not to say that walking isn't. It's, it's okay, a, Shua. I understand. <laughs> it's a slower exercise. It's a lot of thinking. It's a lot of observing. When I'm on a walk, I'm looking around. I'm noticing people. When I'm on a run, it's a mental war. And it's, so what is going through your head when, when you're on one of your runs? It depends on the type of run. If it's like a lighthearted run, a relaxing run where I just like at the end of the day, I'm going to go quickly on the treadmill it's very much flow and that flow just when you're exercising kind of feels good you're excited and it gives you a really good feeling afterwards also as if like you did something productive you know when you finish that exam that's how I feel when I finish my run but sometimes it's really about pushing yourself and in those times it's really how far can I push myself how how much discomfort can I handle at this moment and sometimes I'll take out the music while I'm running and see like 
at what point is my brain just like, all right, that's enough. Now I don't do it in like a dangerous way. I do it in very like step by step and like I've been running for a while, but that's some things that I do. Another thing that I like to do is sometimes meditate where I'll just sit and try to notice everything that's going on in my head and focus on nothing. And I took this mindfulness boot camp here at Wash U where I learned. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, you're going to hear about that. <laughs> um, where I learned a little bit on how to do that and practice that with a bunch of other people. Check it out. I think there's advertisements. It happens, I think, once a month. Uh, huge fan. But it really helps you kind of clear your mind from the stress but again it also depends on the type of stress if i'm really overwhelmed i need to go on a run versus if i'm just like stressed about something major or something big i will do meditation yeah i i'm thinking back to to high school i was on the cross country team sophomore and junior year and i never really liked running uh, and i didn't like it in high school um i liked the team atmosphere but i, I was thinking about my mindset when I was running and I, I was never able to sustain any long thread of thought. My, my thoughts were all reduced to very primitive, you know, move feet, move feet, <laughs> keep breathe, breathe out, you know? Um, so in that way, I, I guess it does sort of effectively um, eliminate some of those overwhelming thoughts. Yeah. It gets, it gets out a lot of the thoughts in my head. Like, a lot of those thoughts that are maybe like swerving around in my head and I just can't, I keep thinking about them. Those just kind of disappear when I'm running because it really is like move feet and move legs versus I can't focus on that thing that was bothering me, bothering me five seconds ago. How does your stress level at WashU compare to at IDC in Israel? Well, you can separate first semester from second semester in that sense. Okay. First semester was insane because it's a system where I have projects and papers all the time. And second semester has been incredibly chill because I started focusing on other stuff. Not to say I don't put a lot of work into my studies, but I think I really put in a different mindset to it. And I really look at it as trying to get the most out of the classes versus compete for grades and, you know, measure myself based on how I do the test. And again, going back to what I said in the beginning, I think the tests are a good measure. But at this point, because I'm an exchange student and all my classes are pass fail, I yeah, competing for that pass. I'm, I'm competing for that pass. And most of the teachers are really nice in the sense that they will explain to me the knowledge and I can talk to them and really relate to them, but I'm really not competing for those extra 10, 15 points. Cool. Yeah. Cool. How about you? How has your stress level changed? Like when you walked in to wash you as a freshman and that fear of walking into school and like that shift from high school to college, like what was that like for you? Um, I'm always very slow at transitioning into new environments. Um, so there were a lot of nerves going in and I, I think they, they are natural to some extent, right? High school to college is a huge shift in a person's life. Um, 
So it, it took a little bit of time, um, but I would say by about like two months in, I was mostly adjusted um, and sort of found a group that I that I like to hang out with and talk with. Um, and once I had that, then that that's sort of a nice stable base um, to fall back on when different things come up that stress you out or worry you. Yeah, it gives you a little bit of context when you have a group of friends, when you have something very stable. And even if things are going on around you that are kind of moving around and changing, you know you have your friends. But academically, what what was it like? Like, what was it like walking into your first classes and getting those exams? And adding on to that, when did you decide what you wanted to study and how did that come about? Um, yeah, I think the there were a few differences between classes in high school and college. Um, first of all, the realization that um, I don't have to go <laughs> and I can be a little late. I do go <laughs> and I try not to be late, um, but that, okay. that, was, that was one difference. Um, and other than that, I would say the huge chunk of a grade that every test represents, um, that, you know, failing one test can really affect your entire performance, um, which is a lot more pressure than, than a test in high school. Um, but all of my classes were really interesting, so I was motivated to study for them. And, um, yeah, I found some, some people to study with. And it, it wasn't too, too much of an academic um, overhaul coming from, from high school to college. Did you come with anybody you knew? I knew a couple of people. Um, enough to, to have at least a couple people to kind of talk with about the transition period. Um, but I, I definitely didn't confine myself to just hanging out with them, um, sort of recognizing that college isn't the time to stick with just the people you know but to, to meet new people yeah absolutely and what would you say to the incoming freshman who's walking into wash U and is just trying to figure out their place here what would be a recommendation that you think you kind of wish you would take more advantage of or you would tell people to take more advantage of not to say you still have another year here but just a piece of advice honestly I like I'm a junior now I don't feel at a point where I'm you know the wise like upperclassman who's fit to give advice to the under you know the lower classmen I, I would say I would say like you know you'll figure it out it's it's a process but you'll be okay I don't really know who you are because you're a hypothetical freshman <laughs> um, but I'm sure you know you're a bright kid you got into wash you you'll 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 do okay so let's touch on that. You're a bright kid because you've gone into Wash U. I hear that a lot, and I've never really heard that before in any institution I've been at. But there is this thing where a teacher would be like, oh, here's this project. You guys are all smart kids. You got into Wash U. Is everybody smart here? Uh, I've definitely talked with some people who I, I wouldn't <laughs> characterize as smart being, being their first, uh, trait, <laughs> but, um, everyone brings something, uh, unique to the table and, uh, unique character trait that, that, um, you know, enhances the community. 
So let's go deeper into that. So WashU is a very exclusive school. They like to promote their acceptance rate as being incredibly low, right? The lower it is, the more prestigious, the most selective it is, the better you feel when you come in here. And you probably are pretty amazing if you did get in here. You've been in a lot of clubs. You worked incredibly hard in high school. You did really well on the ACT, right? A hard thing for me is that a lot of times your identity and who you are is tied to this institution that you're at. And I don't know if it's right or wrong, but this is defining of a lot of your future because college in America is this kind of separating point. It's a filter and there's this huge value you put on education, which I think is great, which makes the best institutions in the world. And I don't know, I just, I, it's so strange for me because I come from a country where the institution that you go to doesn't really matter. Whether you go to, you know, Tel Aviv University, Jerusalem, or, you know, IDC where I went to, they're all great schools, they're all fine, but it there's no kind of value. You'll never introduce yourself as like, I'm a... XYZ student because you've been through so much in your life before you go to school over there the military is mandatory so usually people go to the military and then they go to school and they're older and so they already have their lives figured out and then they go to school and that's not such a big part of them it's just another thing in their life versus here it's the main thing it's so important it's how you define yourself it's how you're going to get your career it's who you're with what do you think of that? That, to me, that really feels sort of like a high school perception. Um, you know, here at WashU, people don't really care about what we got on the ACT or, you know, what our college admissions essays were about. You know, once you're here at, at whatever school you're at, like, this is where you are. And the classes are hard, some of them are easy, and some of your you know, friends are really good at math and some of them are really bad at math. And it's not not so exclusive, I would say. Um, you know, when, once you're here and, and in this environment, we're really just learning together. Um, and I think even moving forward and college in general, I think that, you know, which college you go to isn't really going to affect, be the deciding factor of how good an education you get. You know, really your education is defined by how much you put in. Um, and if you're going to slack off at Wash U, it's the same as if you're going to slack off at, you know, whatever other college. And if you're going to work hard at whatever other college and not at Wash U, then go to that other college. Because um, ultimately, there are good teachers and bad teachers at every school. Um, and the delta between an education that you would get at Wash U or, you know, some other school, they're really not, not so big at all. I think that's a very good point. And I, w I wasn't saying that like people are comparing or that people here are not, you know, they very exclusive people here are the nicest people I've met. And every single person I talk to is really the most, you know, personable, the most welcoming and the nicest people I like really have ever met. And I've enjoyed that. And I really love that about the Wash U community. So I wasn't definitely was not accusing of anything or trying to it's say okay that. i'm not hurt no no I, I really wasn't i was just talking about the aggregate kind of 
system that's underlying and this kind of perception that I sometimes feel is portrayed. But it, I mean, the best people I've met are here again. But I think you're right. And you touched on a very important point is that it's really up to you. And your personal effort is what's going to define how far you get and where you go in life. Obviously, there are circumstances, and that's a lot of times a political discussion here in the U.S., but it is really a personal responsibility. And I think, like you were saying, it's not the institution. The Delta isn't so big. But I think at WashU, you have these incredible resources available. And that is a huge advantage because... I don't know. I find it that it's really been a different type of education for me here. I've learned a ton here in a way faster pace than I have previously. And from it's just been transformative because being around people who are so driven, who are studying so hard, but studying efficiently and very smart, I think has pushed me personally to work I wouldn't even say harder, but just more effectively and give like better results, better execution of my projects, of my tests and of like whatever I'm doing. And I think that's something that does stand out for WashU and does stand out for certain institutions. But I think ultimately, like it definitely doesn't define you. And that's what really my point is, is that it's up to what you do and what you make of it and it's your perception that really matters and that's a hard thing to do because sometimes you're kind of stuck in this you know how the system is or how the rankings or all that and i i never buy those rankings by the way like all these national rankings of like oh like so-and-so school has like the fifth best food it's like how like what study was that <laughs> like who went and like objectively ate every you know food at every college and is like you know what like i think like cornell has the fifth best food like i don't know i've always been really skeptical of those but the food the food no i'm not talking about the food ranking i'm talking about the university rankings on i don't know forbes or us news or whatever colleges do tout as their like most prized awards that even, even that though, like how do you how do you judge a school for its, you know? Some of them are like employability. Um, I know at IDC, for example, it's one of the best for how the students like the school. So their perception of how the school like helps them comes, like, gives them a good education, balances. Like so were you at, like were you ever asked about that? Yeah, we fill out surveys. Oh, okay, that's good. Yeah, you guys don't fill out surveys. I I have not. Maybe I avoid. Maybe someone gave it to me and asked nicely, and I was busy. I don't I, know. Yeah, I don't know how the rankings go exactly in the U.S., but I don't know. It's just an interesting point. But I want to I want to get touched down on identity. So when you who you who are you, and that's like obviously the most wow. generic deep question but i sometimes think when i like introduce myself like i'm introducing myself as like my name and then like my favorite color and 
a fun fact about me. But then I kind of think that's like, pretty much it. That's <laughs> that's all there is to me, yep. right? <laughs> well, sometimes my pronouns too, but it really. What does that say about you? I I don't even know, but sometimes I can see somebody in a group and say like, "Hey, I feel like I somewhat know them." You know, when when they do say that fun fact and they make it into this longer story and they put it in context and they maybe they joke around with a friend, you can't see something about them. But I don't know, it's just an interesting thought. Yeah, I mean I personally despise icebreakers, uh, <laughs> and I think it's an atrocious way to to get introduced to someone, because um, it's really this sort of like weird framework for like who can come up with the wittiest comment for like what's your favorite ice cream, <laughs> which is like okay. Um, so for me, like the best um, sort of introduction to a person is to do an activity together, mm. go on a hike, play a board game, whatever. Um, because we're not defined by really the labels that we give ourselves or that other people give us. I think who we are comes out more in um, our behavior when we're doing something together. Um, so if you're trying to get to know someone, like do something fun rather than telling them what you know ice cream you like <laughs> and trying to be witty about that. Well, usually what follows the icebreaker is some sort of game, right? Oh, uh, like another yeah. sort of icebreaker game. Yeah, like it, those are kind of trying to create activities from it does that make sense yeah just i guess we just have to come up with good activities because okay. a lot of those are absolute garbage but <laughs> sorry i'm i filled my rant time you can take the mic back i i think that's a good point is that doing an activity with somebody and dan Ariely, who is an israeli psychologist yeah not a psychologist he's an academic in psychology and he really says that if you want to go know whether you really like somebody go like whitewater rafting with them or something and then see how they respond under like pressure you know wow that is high stakes i i wouldn't do it on the first date but i don't know i i think it's a fun activity like you want to be my friend let me see you on the raft get up there yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about relationships in general i there's a different dynamic here in relationships um, between in Israel where where I come from. I come from a very religious Orthodox background, modern Orthodox, where a lot of my friends started dating in high school and they had their high school sweetheart and they're going to marry them. And they go along for a couple of years and they don't touch each other because that's what the Bible says. And then they get Does married. the Bible say that? depends who you ask but okay there certain rabbis say that the rabbis of the modern orthodox community certain rabbis say that the torah implicitly says between the lines <laughs> that a man cannot touch a woman no okay. it says that you will become un you will become unholy which means tame if you do touch a woman because she, in order for her to be holy, she needs to be married. And I know there's a modern movement against that and saying like, you know, you can do what you want. But I think there is some value in the Bible in what it said. And I don't think it's like sexist or something like wrong. I think it just is what it is. And 
we live in free countries and we can choose whether to take that package or not. And so it's not like it's imposing and it's a problem when it's imposing on people. It's not a problem when somebody grew up that way and they internalized this and they really believe that marriage is an ultimate holy goal. And you know what? Maybe it won't give them the most career advancement. Maybe it won't be the, you know, best thing. But who says career is like the best thing for a person? I don't know. If I could, I would want to be with my kids or my family as much as I can. And I wouldn't want a career. But I don't know. These are just things that I find, themes that I find that are very sometimes a little bit against religion and claiming like they're not progressive, they're not modern. And I don't think that's inherently bad. It's not inherently bad to, to not be modern or you think these aren't inherently not modern. I think these are not inherently negative ideas and progressivism is a good is a good idea for some people and if you believe in it it's really great and a lot of the terms saying like progress and progressive and you know a lot of these terms i don't think are necessarily perfect and a lot of the other ideas i think do have some value and they really work for the people that follow them for some people they don't and for those people it's terrible a lot of times and if it's imposed it's a lot of corruption that's horrible but inherently i've seen communities that thrive under these systems and modernity right modernity yeah Yeah, modernity and progressivism ideas progressive ideas would not work and they would actually turn out negatively for them does that make sense yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. Um, and I think the the fact that a s- system of beliefs and rituals is effective at sustaining a community um, with meaning right now isn't a perfect indication that this is an absolutely perfect system. It just means that it works right now. Uh, and I think one of the aspects of Judaism that um, I find meaningful uh, is its emphasis on on questioning. Um, and we're not satisfied as just accepting things as they are, no matter what. We're always going to kind of push back and question um, and realizing that that process of questioning makes ultimately w- our, our beliefs stronger, whatever whatever those end up being. Have you ever studied the Talmud? I've dabbled. You've dabbled. So yeah, the Talmud is a Jewish text where literally all they do is question. They have a set of rules where ancient rabbis, the more ancient you are, the more authority you have in interpreting the actual text of the Bible. And it just depicts detail by detail their arguments in their little synagogues at the time. And it goes so complex that it's almost very very detailed law written down and there's no conclusion it's just arguing and questioning for the sake of arguing do you think it is for the sake of arguing i think it really is understanding the thought process because when you go to the thing in the bible you can literally find 
the entire thought process of the rabbi's interpretation of it. So the ultimate, you know, halakha, which is the ultimate commandment and the ultimate observance that you do depending on who you are, whether you're conservative or orthodox, you can see the entire thought process behind it. And I think that is incredibly valuable because otherwise you would just go and say, like, how did we get to this? But I can say, hey, I literally have a list of the argument of what happened and how they got to it and what rules they followed. Yeah, I definitely don't think it's argument for the sake of argument, um, which is a sort of destructive medium, uh, in my opinion. <laughs> um, but really, it's arguing to flesh out each other's opinions and really to sharpen everyone's points. Um, and transparently laying out that process is something really cool to to watch. Yeah, and I think in Judaism, there, there is this sort of argument, kind of idealization of argument, where in many of my classes in high school, I went to an Orthodox high school, and we had these hour-long sessions where all we were supposed to do was sit and do something called chavruta, but the real goal was just to argue the Talmud, which is just arguments, in order to understand it better. But there were two levels. One was understanding it on the surface, so covering the most, and the other was understanding it in depth, which was called iyun. And in the, the surface level, we were tasked with just like taking these incredibly complex things and just coming to some sort of conclusion on them very quickly. And with a friend, you're supposed to sit with a friend and just study it. It's in a completely different language. It's not in Hebrew. It's in Aramaic mixed with Hebrew. And there's very complex interpretations versus in Iyun, we were supposed to go incredibly in depth and get interpretations of the arguments by later rabbis. And that was what I thought was interesting because there was no ultimate answer because the teacher would come up and say, like, this is the understanding of it. These are the basic principles. But then another time he'll say, you can also understand it this way. So I'm wondering if if you think this pair learning structure, the Hevruta, is something that could be applied to secular studies um, in universities or, you know, elementary schools and so on. I think in subjects where there is a lot of argument about the exact interpretation and there's a lot of depth to it and a lot of factors where people can grasp it somewhat. So maybe in law, there could be this sort of argument, but I think it's unique to the Talmud having such complexity and such depth and such rules that makes it able to have that chavruta because you don't really study chavruta. I never had in high school studying chavruta in that way for the sake of argument other than the Talmud. So I've had studying in, in pairs, but it was just kind of going through material, kind of how you'll study for a test versus this was literally just for argument. There was no conclusion. You had to cover a certain amount of material and then the teacher would go over it in class but you were really just arguing. But by, by the end, did you did you feel like you had a sharper sense of what you saw as the conclusion? Absolutely, because you are taking into account the other person. And I guess this ties back to what we were saying about learning is that 
you're kind of getting this feedback and this kind of pushback from your friend. And that's part of the learning. Like, it's not like you're just going to go through it and just be like, oh, that's that, that's that. Because it's so unclear and so vague and so complex that you really need to, like, explain it to each other and then explain it in different ways. And I think that was actually the hardest thing I've studied. In my, I've studied, like, math, economics, and to the extent that I studied, that was the hardest thing for me to grasp. And it really forced my brain to like think like it there was no repetitive activity going on like when you're solving a problem and you just go on to the next one and you just follow these basic rules there were no rules so you just <laughs> every single time you had to think completely separately about it you had to look up resources you had to ask people and you had to argue about it and i think that is a unique learning way in the jewish community so <clears throat> Imagine for a second that instead of studying in your chavruta and really arguing, that you stayed home and just watched a Khan Academy about that tractate <laughs> of the Talmud. Um, what do you think you'd be missing out? And why do you think that Khan Academy still is fine um, as a holistic form of, of learning for other subjects? Well, I think the question I would ask you is why are we all studying the same thing? Why are we all studying these surface? Why are we all really studying the same thing and i guess for the basics if i needed to understand the rules of the talmud a khan academy video would have been pretty useful and just giving me the rule book on why people think a certain way and it would probably be a like 30 part khan academy because it's pretty complicated and every time you're learning more and more but Khan Academy would be useful in understanding the framework, but because there's no real answer and there's no material that you need to copy and paste onto your brain, then there's no like there's nothing really to teach. You could teach it, and the teachers do teach it, but you need to come to it on your own. And because it is so complex, I think this is a really good method. And now that I think about it, I think what you were saying and what I think you were insinuating is that Chavruta and the classroom are kind of similar, but I don't feel that it's anything like Chavruta in a classroom. In Chavruta, when you walk into the synagogue, it's loud. It's really loud. People are arguing. People are walking around and asking other people. Everybody's asking everybody's opinion. Everybody's trying to understand it. It's a vibrant vibe. And I think that is part of the learning. So the, the people who don't really study so much in the classroom really did learn there because they were personally invested in it. And a lot of it came with like psychological needs of like, I need to be right. And then you'll argue about it for a while and figure out you're completely wrong. And those were good lessons to learn versus in a classroom, like you don't have to do that. You can study alone and you can go over all the material. I see that a lot where if you're just studying you know, whatever in your room, I do that where, and you do fine on the test and you understand the material pretty much. So maybe that vibrant atmosphere is something to aspire towards. Maybe, but is that actually realistic in a classroom where the teacher is supposed to lecture? Because the teacher is not even but present. But that's, I mean, we can, we can question that. Like, is that how we should be doing things? I don't know. Maybe there is a point where 
we should make people go into Chavruta and study, you know, twos on their own. But people wouldn't do that. They would just go and do whatever they want, right? You can't, they forced us to be there. And I don't know why, I loved it. Most people really didn't like it. And a lot of people slept in and didn't go to these Chavrutas. I personally love the Talmud. It makes me think a lot. And that's like really my favorite Jewish text. But a lot of people... You're making your parents very proud right now, by the way. Oh, they're going to be so thrilled. (laughs) 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 To be clear, I don't observe everything in there. So (laughs) I'm going to keep making my parents proud. (laughs) I enjoy the Talmud. (laughs) Good, good. Um, No, but but I... Yeah, I think some it, it is hard to imagine at some points, but one of the courses in college that I've taken that I, I really liked um, had this format of, you know, watch videos for the background on a topic and then come into class and work in, you know, a pair of two or three on a set of problems to solve. And, you know, if you're struggling, then you're talking to each other, you're putting ideas up on, on the computer and really working towards that problem. Um, so I think that for me really did break down the traditional class classroom structure uh, in a way of imagining what is possible with with learning and thinking about is this the best way to to teach that's a fair point do you think that the complexity of the class matters because i have a class like that where it's a little bit similar but the material is very easy it's very kind of chill or if it would be too hard i feel like people wouldn't be as engaged because they don't want to go in it as much in like the 10 minutes that you're given you know i i don't think people are dismayed by the difficulty of a subject i think they're dismayed when they they work hard and don't make any progress on understanding and so if the classroom is really going to embark on this kind of experimental chevruta-esque structure then it's, it's really on the class to provide the resources, um, TAs and teachers being accessible so that when a group gets stuck, um, they know they can, they can ask for help. I think that's a good point. Yeah, definitely having people walk around. And that maybe that is something that universities can implement, this kind of time where for us it was hundreds of people in this one room doing all learning the same thing pretty much but yeah it could be that you'll have you know something similar i have i have another class like that but again it's just not it's i guess it's not material that i can relate to it's not material that i'm using my brain as much it's very mundane on the surface material and i think if i'm gonna go into it honestly i think business is really on the surface type of material. It's like the numbers and you know how to market and all that stuff. It's kind of touching on psychology. You know, consumer behavior is touching on psychology. Finance is kind of touching on what drives the numbers, right? Because they don't just appear like you don't just get revenues, but there's a lot of other subjects that kind of feed into it. And so I think it's a little bit on the surface. But anyway, back to the classroom. What do you what do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that like it's a really exciting image that you painted um, of that vibrant setting of learning. Um, and I, I think it might not 
work in all subjects and in all classroom settings. Um, but I think it definitely is something to aspire, aspire towards, and at least to try out, you know? I don't know if there's so much harm in, in trying it out and seeing if it's effective and when it's not kind of analyzing where it fell short and trying to address those problems. I think that's a great point. And I think that's a good ending spot talking about education, talking about that chavruta, and maybe even possibly giving it a shot at some point. You know, you said your class, you enjoyed it. So thank you all for listening to the Shua and Kobe podcast. This is our second part of the podcast. It's our second episode. And we are so excited you stayed this long. Wow, we are going on an hour. So before we leave, I want to give a word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by Squareface, your everything SpongeBob website. You can get again paint you can get mask you can even get a spongebob clown to come to a birthday party visit squareface.com slash kobe and shua to get a 30 percent discount on sponges because sponges with eyes and a mouth which i think is unique to squareface i use it when i buy sponges or yellow paint or everything spongebob this podcast is also brought to you by water. Really important. We have it every day and we need it every day. Thank you and goodbye. We will see you next time.